My name is uh, Bob Kedlisic. I'm one of the pastors here in Bridgewater, Montrose, and we're wrapping up our series on open house, and uh, that leaves uh, next Sunday to be the open house. So I want to encourage you to invite uh, friends and others to next Sunday's service. We're going to have lunch right outside afterward. And uh, we learned on Father's Day that people don't mind eating hot dogs and hamburgers at like 10, 15 in the morning. So, so even after this service, I mean, if you want to eat a little bit later, come to the second service. We have a lot more room in that service as well. But, um, and, and just uh, we'll have a bounce house and some games and things for the kids and, and um, maybe, maybe for older people too, but uh, not the bounce house, but the other games. Um, so just, just a great opportunity to invite people because here's, here's the reason why we're here. Here's the reason why I'm here at least is because this world is a broken, messed up world, right? And, and there is so much wrong in this world. And when Jesus came, Jesus came to fix a broken world because all of, all, almost all of the problems in the world today can be summarized in one word, people. <laughs> They're almost all the result of people. I mean, you think of it, from crime and war to suicide and drug addiction to, to poverty and, and homelessness and what is the underlying problem? The underlying problem is people. And, and Jesus came to die for us and to show us a different way of being human. And a different way of living. And he said, here is the solution to all of the problems. And it's not an educational uh, system or, or institution. And it's not a political party. And it's not a military solution. Jesus said, here's the solution. I'm going to call it the church. And you need to make more and better disciples. People who look like me. People who are following Jesus and loving Jesus. That is the solution in this world. And that is the goal of this church. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, that is the purpose of your life. And that is the only thing that is going to change this broken world. Again, thinking of Afghanistan. What will fix Afghanistan? Jesus can fix Afghanistan. Afghanis coming to Christ and having the courage to stand up to those who are cruel and evil. Afghanis coming to Christ and having the ability to forgive. What a foreign concept in that foreign land. And so that, that's our goal. And so this open house is how does our church, our church is designed with different rooms. Our small groups are kind of like a living room. Serving is kind of like the kitchen. This is kind of like a front porch uh, deal, and we explain why we do what we do, but it's all for this one purpose. And so today, I'm not going to talk about our church so much as I I'm going to talk about three kinds of people that are in the world and three kinds of people that are here this morning watching online and here in person. And, and the question I want you to, to answer before you leave is what kind of person are you and, and what will it take to get you in this chair right here. So people are like chairs, okay? Three kinds of chairs here. And uh, the first is the stool, okay? This is the chair you want to be in. This is someone who is totally, radically committed to Jesus Christ, all in. And I'm um, going to give an example from God's Word of someone who was all in, and it's Caleb, all right? We have some Calebs here this morning, but... Um, this guy was a little bit older, 
Um, this is about 3,300 years ago. The people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. And so Moses, if you remember, he, he uh, brought all the, the, the Jews who were slaves in Egypt. He brought them after the plagues out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Uh, God gave him the Ten Commandments. He brought them down to the Israelites. They went through the desert. They came to the promised land. And uh, this, is, this is what he's referring to. It was four, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my conviction. So Moses picked 12 spies, each from every tribe of Israel. They went out and spied out the land to see what was there, and they came back with a report. And their report, all 12 spies told the truth about what they saw, but they all had a different conviction about what they saw. And he says, I explain a report from my convictions, but my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, you know what? Following and obeying God, it's not safe. It's, it's dangerous. These people, they have walls. They have, they have, they're armed. They have, they have uh, you know, all this equipment. And, and, and some of them are enormous. They're tall. They're six, seven, maybe even eight feet tall. We, they're huge. This is crazy. Let's go back. Let's not obey God. We can't trust God to beat these guys. I mean, this is, these, are, these are real, real physical obstacles we can't overcome it and and if you if you think that becoming a christian is going to be safer if you think following jesus is a safe thing then you need to read the bible more about jesus because he didn't live a safe life he didn't die a safe death um and and so caleb said Let's do it. Why? Because he wholeheartedly loved God, wholeheartedly obeyed and served God. And he says, so on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. I just love how Moses refers to God. He's not the Lord God. He's not even, sometimes in the Bible, you hear people talking about God, the Lord your God. Others will say the Lord our God. But with Moses, God was like a friend that he would talk to face-to-face in a figurative sense. And it was the Lord, my God, for Moses. And now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me. This is Caleb talking again. He's kept me alive for 45 years. So he was 40 plus 45 years. I'm not a banker, but I can do math. That means he was 70. No, he was 85. Sorry, if you missed last week, you got to listen to Pastor Josh. Um, not Pastor Josh, Josh Edwards, the banker. 45 years since the time he said this to, to, to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old, um, which seems old to me. But I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. This is a wholehearted guy, isn't he? I mean, he's like, man, I can get, the, I can get them. I still got it. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites, those are really tall people. They would call them Anakites. 
were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. And Joshua, he was the other spy who also obeyed God wholeheartedly and said, we can do this. Um, And then the others said no, and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And every other man, these guys' age, died. These are the only men of their generation still alive. We're not sure how many women were still alive if all of them died, but I, I tend to think it was just the men because the men were held accountable for their leadership or lack of it in the nation. And so these guys are the only ones of their generation. They're the only ones who remember all of this. Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. And Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel. How much? Wholeheartedly. That's what this stool represents. It is not the most comfortable chair. In fact, I I wanted a stool and Rick was like, hey, we got some more comfortable stools in the back. No, that's not the point. Okay, following God wholeheartedly is not going to be safe. It's not going to be comfortable. But if you believe the Bible, this is the chair you want to be in. Um, What kind of person are you? Here's the second chair, the recliner. Now, most of us, between these three chairs, you got the beanbag, the stool, and the recliner. I would choose the recliner, right? It, it would be the most comfortable. You think that's the one to be in. But as you read God's Word, that is not the one to be in. An example of a comfortable or compromising Christian is not Joshua or Caleb, but the people around them. And this describes them. Manasseh, it was a tribe of Israel. They did not, one of the 12 tribes, they did not drive out the people of Bashan or Ta'anak or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. And when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Ephraim is Joshua's tribe. He was the head of this tribe. But Joshua was wholehearted. His countrymen, in general, were half-hearted, and they didn't completely obey, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Here's what Jesus says about, about this. He says, no one, Matthew 6, 24, can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you will be de- devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and yourself. You cannot serve both God and safety. You cannot serve God and being in control. So this is how we usually interpret this passage. And it's not an interpretation. It's a misunderstanding. We say, okay, so what he's saying is, you know, you can't sit on a fence very long. In time, you're going to fall off on one side or the other. And that's not what he's saying because there is no fence in this verse. You see a fence? He's saying, if you're sitting on a fence today, this morning, that fence is firmly on the side of self or money or safety or control, and you are not following God at all. There is no fence on God's side. 
Right? If, if you, are, are, you feel like you're serving two masters today and you have, you, know, you have one foot in following God, but yet there's these other things that really kind of you don't want to give up and it's my guilty little pleasure and, it's, and it's, you, know, you don't want to go overboard and you know, let's, not, let's not go to extremes, all things in moderation. If that's where you are, you are not following God. Jesus did not live in moderation. Jesus did not love in moderation. Jesus did not die in moderation. And if you are, you're not following Jesus. And so this is the comfortable chair. And here's why it's comfortable. Okay, so this is the non-Christian here. And there's over there is the committed Christian. And then right in the middle is the comfortable Christian. Okay, here's what this chart means. This is my own chart, so it's a little primitive. And if it doesn't make sense, it's because I made it up. So, so on this side, the non-Christian, pain from sin. So if you totally disobey God's word, um, you have no self-control, you're lazy, someone upsets you, you just kill them, you steal, you know, you will have a lot of pain from that sin. You're probably in jail right now. <laughs> If you're here, but you see, the more you obey, even if you don't believe God's word, the more you obey what God's word says, the less pain from sin is in your life, right? Don't lie. The, the more you obey that, the less pain from lying is in your life. Don't steal, the less pain, because when you sin, and, and I came upon this quote recently, and I hope I don't mess it up, but I probably will. Sin is not for. I'm trying to remember. Sin is not forbidden because it is, all right, never mind. The problem, the problem with sin, the problem with sin is not that God said don't do it, okay? And so then if you do it, God's going to get you. The problem with sin is it was, it was dangerous, it was painful, it was hurtful, and that's why it was forbidden. Okay, so Interfaith is doing a great job. Um, they're putting up siding on that church, and they're doing the, the, the gingerbread, whatever that work is. It's re looking really cool. They have this bell tower, and uh, I've seen Bob up in the bell tower. Okay, if you jump off the bell tower at Interfaith, does God have to punish you for that? No, gravity will do it all by... So, if God gave a command about the bell tower, he would say, thou shalt not jump off the bell tower of interfaith. And, and he's not giving that command in order to limit your fun, you know, in order to make your life so miserable and restricted. No, no, he's giving you that command because it's harmful. So God's commands, he basically looked at, you know, how the world is structured and, and how things are. And he says, these things are harmful. They're called sin. Don't do that because you will hurt yourself and you will hurt others. I mean, if, if you steal from someone, how many of you have ever been robbed? I've been robbed. How many of you have been robbed? There is something about being robbed that goes beyond the taking of your stuff. You know, my, my computer was stolen by a man that my mom had over for Christmas dinner because he had nowhere to go. And there was a betrayal in him stealing from me, a pastor. And you know how he was able to steal from me? Because all three of us pastors were at a funeral. And he showed up at church and 
it just, it's just so, it, it just, so, so you steal, you're going to hurt people and you're going to hurt yourself. He went to jail, not for that, but stealing a car. <laughs> so, you know, so God says, don't do this because it's hurtful. And so, so yeah, so pain from sin. So if, if you obey God, though, and then here, here is pain from obedience. Okay, you obey God. You stand up for God. You're totally committed. You're going to lose friends. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You might not be financially secure because you've been generous and you've given it to others in need. And there is a pain to committed Christianity. But you know where there's not really hardly any pain? Right here. X marks the spot. If you want the most enjoyable life here on earth, be a comfortable Christian. Here's what goes along with that. Hurting others and eternal influence. Same thing. Less you hurt others less as you get on this. You have a greater influence and impact in people's lives. If you don't really care about that, here's where you want to be. A comfortable Christian. It's another way of looking at it. Short-term and long-term thinking. You know what this is? This is thinking. This X marks the spot. is thinking about your life. So for me, if I want to think 30 years in the future and less... That's right here. If you're thinking about 24 hours in the future, you're up here, okay? And you're probably having a very painful life because you're not thinking ahead, right? You're just thinking about what, what feels good right now. But, but as wisdom increases, as obedience increases, you come down this line, but there comes a point. You know what this is? This is thinking about, this is where I want to be. I want to be thinking about 200 years from now, a thousand years from now. That, that, that's what that is. Um, and so what kind of a person are you? Committed, comfortable, or, or a non-Christian? And that's the beanbag. And here's, here's the example of the, this in, in Judges and Joshua's generation. After that whole generation, Joshua, Caleb, and uh, some who are a little bit younger than them who would have as children remembered the miracles in Egypt, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And so you have Joshua and Caleb and Moses, and they loved God, and they knew God. And then you have that half-hearted generation, and they had seen what God had done. And then the next generation, they, they didn't even know who God was. Uh, the the non-Christian. Here's what I want you to really internalize today. This was written by a man who was an atheist and very brilliant. He was a good friend of J.R. Tolkien who wrote the Lord of the Rings series and taught at Cambridge and became a Christian as a young man. He said, if true, Christianity is of utmost importance. If, If Christianity is true, you want to be this kind of a person. Right? It's uncomfortable. There's a sacrifice involved in it. There's, there's, it's not safe, but this is where you want to be if Christianity is true. If Christianity is not true, you want to be in the beanbag okay? because it's, it's just not true. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. The only, if you're here this morning and you're, a you're not a Christian and you're like, yeah, the Bible's just a book, you know, I think God is, 
is who you make of it, or I, I worship a different God, not the God of the Bible. If, if you believe that, you are consistent, or you could be consistent. If you are committed to Christ completely, you are consistent. If you are a comfortable Christian, you, you're committing an intellectual suicide. It doesn't make any sense. There is no reasonable, logical reason to be in the recliner. So I, I want to just talk about five, five aspects, five characteristics, areas of, of our lives where this, this makes a difference. So um, number one, priorities. Committed Christians, what, what are their priorities? Um, committed Christian basically says, you know, God, God is first. Right? If you're in this stool, you're, God is first, God is second, and God is third. My life is all about God. It's for God. I, I'm totally committed to God. Um, I was raised in a home like this. I, I just want to say, this is not perfection, okay? It, it, it's, in fact, in the Bible, was Joshua and Caleb, were they perfect? No. No, they weren't. Was Moses perfect? No. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of, he, he was told to speak to the rock and he got mad and he hit it with a stick and God said, you're out. David is a good example. David, it says, was a man after God's own heart. He had a wholehearted love for God most of the time. And then he saw that woman bathing and he committed adultery and then he committed murder to cover it up. But then when he was confronted, what did he do? He didn't try to hide it more. He didn't try to, like, run from his sin. He didn't try to silence those who knew or whatever, rationalize it. He said, you're right. I have sinned. It was wrong. I deserve to be punished. I don't want to live that way. I'm going to change. And he did. And so this, this isn't perfection. This is, this is perseverance. This is like, I'm going to, okay, oh, I just messed up. and oh. Why did I sin like that? God, forgive me, and I don't want to do that again, and I'm going to re reorder my life so I can follow God because I want to follow him wholeheartedly. David was wholehearted. Solomon was, was half-hearted. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, didn't follow God at all. And that's often um, the pattern. Their priorities. So committed, God first. Non-Christian, self-first. And, and you say, well, but I know a lot of Christians who are very unselfish. Yes, you do, but it's on their terms. They decide when they're going to make sacrifices because they think it's best. The, the self, the, they are calling the shots. They are in charge of their life, right? And so they could be very moral, but it's on their terms and it's their decision. They can make lots of sacrifices, but it's them that are, I am determining where I will sacrifice and where I won't because my life is ruled by me. But the comfortable Christian is in the middle. It's God and self, right? And often this, this kind of an individual compartmentalizes life. Okay, this is the, the church God area of life that has nothing to do with gambling over here or it has nothing to do with my work ethic or how, how I respond to my family or people who cross me or, or whatever. But over here, you know, this is small group and this is, you know, church and this is, 
this is, you know, praying before meals. And, and you have these different categories and areas of your life. And it's, it's very stressful. Because there's this pull back and forth in your priorities. Their view of God. Um, committed Christians, they view God as a relationship. I love God. I like spending time with God. God is my friend. Um, comfortable Christians, they view God more as a religion. There's a lot of duty revolving around God, and I need to check off the list and, and make sure that's good. And, and they might t- talk to you about what God has done five or 20 years ago, you know. In fact, I do a lot of funerals, and, and, when, and when the only stories that are told at a funeral are from decades ago about something about God, that's a bad sign. Um, and then the non-Christian, of course, their view of God is rejection. Again, this, they reject the God of the Bible. doesn't mean they don't believe in God. Uh, in fact, in America, most non-Christians believe in God. And they, they might even call themselves a Christian, but it's, it's a God of their own imagination. It's not the God of the Bible, it's the God who's really the the best version of me, right? It's a God who thinks like me, who agrees with me about everything I believe in, you know, depending on what you believe, your God is a Republican or a Democrat, if you're this kind of a person, or maybe your God's an independent, but he's independent in the exact same way that you're independent, Right? And he, he thinks like you, and he, he acts like the best version of yourself. And that's the God that most people worship and believe exists, and that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does not agree with me. There are times where I look at what God describes himself as and what God says is true, and I say, I don't understand that. I don't maybe even agree with that. I wouldn't have, have, have set up the world that way, but... I'm not in charge, the God of the Bible is. So that's their view of God. Their view of the Bible, um, obviously committed Christians say the Bible is the authority in my life. Non-Christians ignore the Bible. It's, a great, it's like a work of Shakespeare. You know, it's like the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient Greek, you know, poetry. And, you know, it's not a big ignore it. Now, the comfortable Christian, though, respects the Bible. Now, that sounds so nice. I respect the Bible, but what it means is I get to choose what I follow and believe about the Bible, right? And so sometimes maybe uh, someone, you know, there's part of the Bible I agree with that, Terry, you're not living, so I will hit you with my verses because I believe the Bible in that way, but then there's another part of the Bible that I'm not living, and well, you know, that's just, that's just uh, your interpretation, Really, I think thou shall not steal means thou shall not steal. I don't think stealing is, is an interpretive, you know, translation. Thou shall steal, you know, or, or whatever. So, so, you know, that's, that's don't, don't respect the Bible. I mean, you need to respect the Bible. Don't just respect the Bible. It, it needs to be the authority in your life. Again, this is this consistency. You either sit on the stool or you're in the beanbag. Moderate Christianity is the only thing that can't be true. 
And that's true with your approach of the Bible. Their purpose in parenting. Um, so, so committed Christians, what they want is they want godly children. Um, Non-Christians, what they want is they want successful children. Whatever success means, it might mean make a lot of money. It might mean uh, sports, you know, it might mean popularity. It may mean a degree of morality, but again, I, I'm determining what morality is, and if I decide it changes, it changes. But, but success, that's what they want. Now, comfortable Christians, what they want is they want good kids. And that sounds like a good thing, but they just want good kids. They just want, just don't, don't do drugs and don't get pregnant, all right? Just be good. You know, just, just, just don't do anything really bad. Now, don't go, go off to Ethiopia or anything like that. Like, don't go be crazy. You know, I, I want you to take care of me when I get old and, you know, or whatever. But, but it, it's this just be good. And it's more, it's not about the child's heart. It's about their behavior. Don't make me look bad. That's my goal in parenting. That you make me look good. Right? And behavior modification more than your heart. And, and do you love God? No, just, just be good. And so, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but um, I'm going to give an example of some of my parenting that I'm not sure I'm doing it right, but... I just want to give this example because if you want an extraordinary child, you cannot raise that child in an ordinary way. Because most adults, most children are raised to be adults in our country that are not what God would want. They're not godly, right? So why would I think that if I raised my kids the way everybody else raises their kids, that they would be godly? Just because I am. So we have to be different kind of parents. We have to do it differently. So here's this thing I throw out there. My son is 16 years old. He's going to be driving very soon. We got his permit application all filled out, and he does not own a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> Kid's two and has a cell phone, I think. <laughs> no, I don't know who, where the baby is. But um, so... I think he's the only kid in, in, in Montrose High School who's a junior or a senior who doesn't have a cell phone. I, I could be wrong about that. I'm sure there's, maybe there's a couple more. But here's the thing. I, that's not a universal thing. All the pastors don't do it the same way. I could be wrong because there is this balance. So on the one hand, I want to protect my son from evil influences. And, man, you have a cell phone. If you have data, you can look at anything. And you can communicate to and with anyone at any time, right? And I didn't realize that with my daughters when we gave them iPods. And after that happened, we were like, oh, that's what this is. So on the one hand, I want to protect my son from unnecessary temptation and evil. On the other hand, though, I want to prepare my son for almost unlimited freedom that he will have as an adult American. And so, so I do want to, you do want to give your kids freedom. And so there are, many of you have bought your kids cell phones, maybe with the idea of saying, I want to, I want to help train them to be able to handle this freedom in a safe environment, the home, 
so that when you do access things you shouldn't, there's consequences that are immediate so you don't have to pay the consequences that are much, much higher that, that naturally come along years down the road. You know, so, so there is a balance there. So I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. I'm just saying you need to be prepared to be weird. You, you know what they just did in China with video games? And I don't know how they're enforcing this, but they have a major nanny state, you know, surveillance of all their people. But children cannot play video games during the week. Only on the weekends, and they limit the amount of that their children can play video games. You say, well, that's weird. You know what? It is. Why would they do that? Because they want more powerful. They have a different view of success. And it's not for a kid to be good at video games. You know, and so we as believers, if you are a committed believer, you need to realize it's if China can be weird for their not necessarily godly reasons, we can be weird. Because I don't want my kid just to be good. And here's the thing with parenting. Godly parents who are trying to raise godly kids usually have godly kids. Now, in order to know whether this is true or not, you need to have between 10 and 20 children. Okay? Because if you have two kids, it's not a big enough sampling. All right? You know, God, the Father, He had Adam and Eve, and they both failed right? So he was the perfect parent in the perfect environment, and, and they, did not, they did not succeed. Jesus, the perfect discipler, had Judas, right? So there is free will, and so don't, this is not a, okay, if I do this, if I'm a godly person, then all my kids will be godly. No, that's not, that's not the way it works, because it's the same way. Non-Christians, they tend to have non-Christian children, right? There's what, 7 billion, 6-some billion non-Christians on earth, and most of their children will be non-Christians, right? And now, that's not to say that non-Christian children can't get saved. Many of you here, your parents did not follow God. They did not, they were not godly at all, and you are totally committed to Jesus Christ. And that's because it's not, a, it's not an equal thing, but that, that's the tendency. Non-Christians tend to have non-Christian kids. Godly parents tend to have godly kids. What do comfortable parents have, usually? Not all the time. Sometimes they're one, sometimes they're other. But usually, comfortable Christians have non-Christian kids. And some of it has to do with this, who they compare themselves to. Because non-Christians compare themselves to comfortable Christians. And they feel really good when they make that comparison. Because they see the, the compartmentalization of comfortable Christians. Act this way here, act this way here, obey God in this way, don't obey God in this way. They see that compartmentalization. And, and what do we call that? Hypocrisy. And they're like, uh, you know what? I, I, I might not be Mother Teresa, but man, I look at that guy and I'm way better than that guy. And non-Christians, when they say, I don't want to, those hypocrites in church, now we're all hypocritical at some point because we're all inconsistent. But, but many times they're pointing to the comfortable Christians and they're saying, if that's Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it because it makes me sick. And you know what? It makes God sick too. He talks about Laodicea. And he says, it just makes me want to vomit. 
this, this, you think you're on the fence. You're not. You're cold. You're blind. You're naked. You're wretched. You, you are not following me at all. And so the children of comfortable Christians look at their parents and since all children begin lives as non-Christians, everyone is born a non-Christian. As a non-Christian, they look at their parents' lives and they say, if that's Christianity, <laughs> that's not for me. And uh, who they compare themselves to, again, if Christianity is true, it is of utmost importance. If not true, it is of no importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Most here today, and I, I, have, I, I have trouble confronting people one-on-one, -on -one, but for whatever reason, I don't have trouble confronting people in a large group like this because it's not personal. It's not personal. I'm not talking about any one individual. I'm just talking about generally is true. Most of the people here, you're comfortable Christians. And it makes God sick. And, and we, need, we need to realize, you know what? I need to be all in. And, and here's the, the takeaway questions is, you need to ask somebody who would be honest with you, what chair am I in, really? And then what holds me back from this? And maybe if someone tells you, oh, you're definitely in the, the committed Christian chair, say, well, in, in, what, in what way, in, in what area am I leaning toward the recliner? Where am I putting my feet up on the recliner? You know, where am I getting off of the chair? And in what areas of my life do you see this compartmentalization? You know, where, yeah, no, this, this doesn't have to do with God. This is, this is my Monday night thing. You know, this is not, this is my Friday night thing. This is not my God thing. And, and just be wholehearted in loving and following God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that uh, you've given us your word. And um, I ask you to help us to follow it. And Lord, I know that the greatest thing that any of us could do for anyone that we love around us is to love you. So God, I just ask that you would help us to love you, to follow you, to be all in for Jesus Christ, God, not to, not to be half-hearted in, in our obedience, but to be wholehearted. And God, I just, just reveal it. Lord, so often I think we're blinded to areas of our lives. Lord, help someone to speak into our lives, maybe who sees what we can't see, and to help us to be in the right chair following Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.